Hello everyone and welcome to Marking the Roll. My name is Phil Dye. We're coming to you from Thoreau on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. I'm sorry that this episode's been a bit late. I've gone deaf in my right ear. So if you're only hearing this out of your left speaker, you'll know that it's digitally contagious and you must run to the doctor immediately. Um, Last episode was on Generation Alpha. And if you're teaching anyone below the age of year 10 in Australia, you're teaching Generation Alpha and what they're like. Um, And there was some interesting feedback about that episode. And mainly the feedback revolved around the the comment that we can't constantly change the way we teach every 15 years as a new generation comes on board and perhaps that generation needs to adapt. And I can certainly see that point. I can see that point for sure. Um, But it's also true that, that in order to educate them, we have to look at what will get into their brain more. And don't forget, these kids um, are not just a... Um, product of their environment. They're a product of their biology and their genetic inheritance from their parents who have become also become addicted to devices. So um, it's, it's an interesting conundrum for teachers. But yes, I can see the point that they have to adapt and we can't always change the way we teach um, for every generation. One interesting comment came from a science teacher, uh, and I've got to agree with this comment, really. And he said that um, the human brain consists of 100 billion neurons, which it does, little brain cells, which all need to link together. And the human brain is capable of linking in all sorts of ways. And just because it may have a default requirement, which is might be generation alpha, it doesn't mean they can't change. Um, and the neurons can link up in different ways, and perhaps they need to have all sorts of different teaching styles in order to assist that linking. Of course, the old adage is the neurons that fire together wire together. Now, that's a good segue to our topic for today, which is the first in a series on the neuroscience of learning. Now, the series won't go one after the other, they'll be intermittent, but This first one looks at cognitive load theory. Now, don't turn off now because it's not going to be delving into the the heavy science of it all. But all you've got to think about is cognitive load. Cognitive is uh, thinking or understanding, uh, learning, um, and it's the load of learning. So you could look at, at learning load theory. In other words, how much can a student or, or an adult or anyone um, tolerate as far as a load of learning goes? I'm sure many listeners have heard of um, cognitive dissonance, where you actually um, can see two sides of an argument or two sides of a coin um, and you can't actually come to a solid understanding because you can equally see two sides of an argument when your brain is actually a little bit confused and disconnected. Sometimes we've been shopping and we we, we buy an item and we get it home and we have um, cognitive purchase dissonance where we go, oh, I don't really like that now. I don't really like that. Oh, I like the colour, but I don't like the size, whatever. Anyway, it's this um, confusion in the brain. Now, this is going to seem a bit common sense to some teachers, uh, and I agree. But 
The neuroscience of learning has not been taught at university in teacher training courses. It should have been taught, and it should have been taught for the last 20 years, as our understanding of the learning brain has grown. I used to uh, do teachers' professional development with understanding the learning brain until Nessa thought it was just a better idea to go to Indigenous and disabled uh, professional development and leave out the learning brain. Um, so uh, I stopped doing that. But um, I used to do this at the University of New South Wales. So understand what the learning brain is all about. Now, for cognitive load theory, I thought I'd talk to someone um, who uses cognitive load theory all the time, and that is Sam Sterrett. Sam is the head of enrichment at the Scotch College in Swanbourne in Western Australia. Um, and I asked Sam first off to tell us a little bit about his education history. Uh, yeah, well, firstly, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Phil. Um, my educational background is I started out teaching uh, year eight students, actually. I got my dip head back in uh, the mid-2000s, uh, and, uh, and I started teaching at a school called Mount Lawley High School, which was a great school, um, performing arts school, uh, and got a chance to work with heaps of really creative kids, which I, which I loved. Um, I then went on to the UK and, and, and lived over there for a few years and taught uh, at an all-girls school in Wimbledon uh, and then found myself on a Skype interview with Scotch College while I was over in London back when Skype was sort of in its early days um, and, yeah, and got a job at Scotch uh, about 2011 and then have been there pretty much ever since. So I'm sort of part of the wallpaper now. So what does the head of enrichment do? So my job is to oversee a team of staff here across the whole college from pre-K to 12. Uh, and each enrichment coordinator that works with me works in sort of different parts of the school and they each have a different focus. So we have a STEM coordinator, a... Uh, um, uh, a literacy coordinator um, and her job is to be in charge of all the things with creative writing and public speaking and that kind of thing. Um, uh, we have a maths-focused um, enrichment coordinator. Then I have a couple of other staff working across the junior and the middle school overseeing a lot of the activities before and after school as far as uh, enrichment opportunities that we have, things like the Ethics Olympiad, Philosophon competitions, um, have some fun competitions in maths and the, the whole gamut of of competitions. But my job is really to oversee all of that and try to look for connections and kind of cross pollinations across the whole school to bring to bring those staff together. Okay, so this episode's on really the neuroscience of learning. There's going to be a few episodes on this, um, and cognitive load theory is getting quite a run lately. Can you explain what cognitive load theory is? Okay, well, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert like uh, the famous John Sweller, who, who came up with the, uh, an Aussie bloke who came up with the theory. Um, but my understanding, well, I, I should tell you how I first came to learn about cognitive load theory. There was a, there was a tweet that went out by uh, the famous British educator, Dylan Williams, who said that this was the single most important thing teachers need to know. And so that really caught my attention. Uh, and I did a deep dive in, into understanding what cognitive load theory and, 
is, and I, I have since presented on it in various places. And my understanding is that it's really about the fact that the human brain can only deal with a small amount of information at once via working memory. Um, and and in the class, and this has big implications for the classroom, because we need to be really careful with how we design our instruction, uh, because it's so easy to overload students' working memory. And if we do that, um, not a huge amount of learning is going on. So it's really it's really shining a light on how we best understand working memory and long-term memory, uh, where the learning really takes place. Uh, and, and how we can modify our instructional design in classrooms to best account for that. So can you explain about working memory? How would you describe that? Well, I, I actually really like the analogy um, or the distinction between uh, RAM in a computer versus your hard drive. I think it's a helpful analogy for people. And that is that you know, when the RAM, which allows you to run a whole bunch of applications on your computer, you know, you might be running, um, you might be running GarageBand and simultaneously running OneNote and have your Google Chrome browser open. Um, and we often, and we occasionally encounter this, the spinning wheel of death when the RAM can't, can't hold um, or can't process information quickly enough. And I, th I think our memory works, our working memory works in very much the same way. It, it, um, it has limitations. Un unlike your hard drive, which you can upgrade in a computer to an almost, you know, un unlimited amount, we really have some hard limits on how our working memory can handle information. Um, yeah, so that would be my characterization of, of, of how working memory plays a role here. Okay, so the working memory is what's available at, at a certain point of time for you to use but of course we remember lots of other things we've got lots of other information um, in our brain but it's the stuff that we can use at any one point of time so to many teachers listening this would be sort of common sense that we can't overload kids too much so how can a teacher use this practically in the classroom well, uh, I think there's a lot of different ways you can modify instruction for students in the classroom, but I think there's two particularly harmful effects of cognitive overload, uh, and those are the redundancy effect and split attention, and I think they're particularly pertinent for classrooms now that are so highly technologised. Uh, the mm -hmm. redundancy effect um, is really this idea that that you know, we assume that providing learners with additional information is at worst harmless and might even be beneficial. But what um, what the redundancy effect shows us is that uh, by providing lots of information, let's say it's on a slideshow, PowerPoint slideshow, um, and we have this compulsion often as teachers to 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 want to put lots of bells and whistles on on our resources, that can effectively chew up working memory space. Um, as kids are sort of attempting to take in and process all that information, and often a lot of that information is irrelevant. So um, through a process called weeding, that is looking through your resources, streamlining them um, in various ways, um, that, uh, and much of this has been um, uh, researched by the work, work of John Sweller and others, uh, things like aligning words and images more effectively, even replacing the combination of narration 
and on-screen text with narration and imagery or symbols. Uh, just a few little techniques, I think, um, that can deal with that redundancy effect to make sure we're, we're, we're keeping our students focused on what they should be um, taking in. Okay, so we've all been guilty of this overload where, you, you know, I've often put too much up on the screen. Um, or also, I guess, when you've got a, a question from a student and the answer goes on and on and on and you're expecting the, the whole class to understand the question and, as well as the answer. But what about the other? There's, all, there's also split attention, which occurs when students... Um, are asked to process information from two or more sources simultaneously. And I'm very guilty of this myself in the classroom. You know, you have a piece of paper in front of them, then you're asking them to jump onto their OneNote. Then you're saying, let's get back onto Sector, the, our other learning management system. Uh, and, all of, and all of this shifting between sources of information can, can really overload students. I think um, staff need to be very mindful of how much they're switching um, students attention from one place to the next and and try to limit that where possible so in some ways we're trying to avoid multitasking for students where they have to look here look there do this do that and make them focus on one thing um yeah i i'm a current i'm a believer that multitasking doesn't really exist that it that it means we do many things badly and maybe we're expecting students to do many things badly. What would you say to that? I think that's absolutely true and I think you could speak to, to any staff member here at Scotch um, and, and they will tell you that with the increased um, amount of technology and it's not just you know our laptops and our iPads that are vying for our attention but um, with this in, this increased environment where their attention is being drawn all over the place, uh, and I fully agree with you, I, th I think the whole multitasking concept has sort of been a bit debunked and through many studies that students are just really splitting their attention across multiple tasks and doing each one poorly. So I'm a huge believer in, in cultivating uh cultivating attention in our students um, and I mean I, I have to say that I see a problem with that across the board from students that I teach in year five right up to uh, year 12. So I think this is a particularly useful theory to get your head around as a teacher uh, given our, our, our rich technologized environments. Marking the role is not-for-profit and run by volunteers. However, there's still lots of costs involved in running a podcast. You can help by becoming a subscriber for $35 per year or by making a small donation. Just go to Marking the Role on Substack or click one of the links in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. It's, it's not just the teachers that have got to get their head around it. To me, it's the, it's the office staff. I was at a school about three months ago and I was doing my neuroscience thing. And this message came across the loudspeakers about such and such having to go to the office and could such and such a person do this. And that completely interrupted the lesson. And then I had to get students back on track. There's other things like uh, students coming in with notes for the teacher and, and mowers going on outside. You know, it's, it, there's only so much a student and a teacher can cope with. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And even the research that's coming out on things like 
handwritten notes. There's a recent article that's come out in The Economist yep. um, that that talks about how handwritten notes uh, and handwriting is such a critical part of learning as well and focusing, helping to focus the attention because of the motor skills that are demanded by it. All, all of these things, I think, point to the fact that uh, our students right now um, have never been more distracted and we need to think really carefully about how we can remove those distractions um, from their learning environment. Uh, even something like teachers talking too much in the classroom. I know there's lots of research out there now uh, showing that teachers essentially just talk too much and that's often distracting for a student in the task that they've just been given by the teacher uh, when the teacher keeps going while they're trying to do it. So I think it's a major, major issue we have to confront. I'm gathering your... Um you're not keen on having mobile phones in the classroom, Sam? Absolutely not. No, I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm vying for their attention uh, with all of these devices. Don't get me wrong. I use, I use technology a lot. Uh, I just think we need to be really, really careful with how that technology is used. I don't see a place for phones in the classroom. Um, you know, I think, uh, careful use of laptops and iPads, absolutely. Uh, but um, as I said, I think it's, it's a war for our students' attention right now. Um, and with Facebook and TikTok and all these other uh, devices vying for their attention, it, we are in a bit of a battle. I fully agree with you. Now, are there any opponents to cognitive load theory? Is anyone sort of debunking it I think I'm not I'm not aware of too much debunking of the theory going on, but um, I guess there's there are some some critics that say it's a little too reductionist, maybe an oversimplification of of the way our working memory works. You know, categorising it into the particular kinds of loads um, and overloads uh, that Sweller and other academics have argued, um, and, and I guess. Some others have said that it doesn't account for the influence of other factors in the classroom, like motivation and social factors and emotions and all these other things that play into um, student learning. Uh, but I think um, Sweller and many others have done a pretty good job at, at running some pretty well-designed controlled trials uh, to isolate some of these variables and and um, and have come up with some pretty powerful results. I think it seems to be fairly common sense. If a person is, is sitting on the lounge watching something on Netflix and uh, then there's cooking noise to the right and to the left the dog is barking and upstairs the kids are yelling out, then you miss the gist of the Netflix show. Um, so it's really minimising all those disruptions and interruptions, isn't it? It is. I think you're right. I think it's very much common sense. Um, but uh, as we've as we've kind of got these amazing technological tools at our disposal, and we've sort of in a, in some ways been sucked in by them, um, well, I, I think this the pendulum needs to swing back a little bit now. We need to really think hard about how we're how we're using them, uh, along with all the other 
distractions that a student um, might encounter, as you say, um, when they're learning or doing anything, really. Yeah, yeah. And common sense hasn't been a great feature of education bureaucracies in the last 10 years. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> are there any subjects um, that are more suited to this cognitive load? I'm, I'm imagining maths, but it, would, that, would I be right with that? Yeah, I think in principle, I, I think subjects like um, mathematics and the sciences where where you often have, uh, you know, conceptual and abstract complexity built in, um, that they can quickly and easily produce cognitive overload, those types of subjects. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think the instructional design for those subjects in particular m- needs to be more, perhaps more carefully managed but I think in principle, it's true for any any classroom you go into. For example, as I said, you know, the redundancy effect, you know, re- removing extraneous information that isn't central to student learning, uh, I, I think is true for, for, for any classroom you go into. Now, I, I know there'll be some, some infants or kindergarten teachers saying, but what about all the decorations on the walls that surround a classroom, especially a, a you know a K K to three or K to four classroom? There's just you know, you know thousands of things on the walls to distract a student. Do you think that that interrupts with the learning? Uh, I I think if we're if we're looking at uh, how it affects learning according to cognitive load theory, I think yes, it's going to have some effects, but you're always dealing with trade-offs in the classroom, aren't you? You know, you're you're dealing with um, wanting to engage learners, hold their curiosity, create a fun environment, um, and often fun and learning are intrinsically linked. But but sometimes those things are, you know, sometimes they're just having fun and 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 they don't necessarily need to be learning every second of the lesson. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's that's where I think some of these. Uh, th- these aspects of the classroom that in principle might distract them from the learning task are also necessary for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. And is there any evidence that it works better for younger students like, if, you know, K to two or, or do you think it's better for high school students? Uh, I, I think there's very different applications of instructional design across across you know uh, from a year two classroom to a year twelve classroom. So the ex- the extent to which uh, these resources need to be modified and um, for those learners is going to be vastly different. I, I I wouldn't say that there is in principle a huge distinction. I think just the manner in which those resources are, are delivered. Is, is going to be very different from a you know English literature class delivering something on Othello um, to a year two class doing basic mathematical functions. I think I think the principle of the limits of our working memory uh, is is pretty universal across across those age groups. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, look, artificial intelligence AI is is really. You know, it's 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 in everything these days. It's even in this podcast, believe it or not. Is there <laughs> is there any way that is there any way that AI can be used for this? Well, yeah, there's a little bit of talk about out there now about how um, AI might be able to help reduce extraneous load on students when they're 
you know, learning some content from a device, you know, for example, uh, and the fact that we can um, personalise and give really interesting, adaptive, targeted feedback and guidance um, through these machine learning techniques. Um, uh, you know, like, for example, an AI-enriched digital biology textbook that might be able to integrate knowledge uh, and information in such a way as to kind of um, boil down complex topics mm. uh, and and apply principles of cognitive load theory to, to get those concepts across in the most efficient manner without distraction. I think there is there's some interesting work being done there. Uh, and so, yeah, I, th- I think it's a fruitful area that, that might be helpful in some of these resources. Um, a question without notice here, Sam. Um, it would seem that direct instruction would work well in hand in hand with cognitive load theory because if you're going to have discovery instruction then a student's discoveries is going to be um, you know they'd be all over the place and it creates distraction do you think that something like direct instruction would work well in line with it i think cognitive load theory very much aligns with direct instruction now, I'm, I'm not someone who's going to claim that you need one or the other. Um, I, I teach uh, at an IB school, which has very much at the heart of it a uh, inquiry-based model. However, um, we're all very, very aware now of, of the research out there on how powerful direct instruction is in the classroom with the work of John Hattie and others. Uh, and so I think a balance needs to be struck between between those two things. Mm. I think there's a place for discovery and inquiry in the classroom, but as a, 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 you know, I, don't, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy to say that we need one or the other in the classroom. That they they sort of are both needed. And I think um, I think cognitive load theory, when we're thinking about a direct instruction sort of type of lesson very much um very much applies here uh, maybe less so in discovery type learning but both are necessary in the classroom now um are there any books or videos that you can remen- uh, recommend to teachers so uh, so they can learn more about it yeah well i'd certainly recommend the work of the australian academic john sweller who came who came up with the theory essentially back in 1988 i believe uh, he's he's written many many papers on this, um, but if you're just looking for um, a book that sort of synthesises his ideas into a helpful book for teachers, um, I've heard really good things about Ollie Lovell's book called Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Mm-hmm. That has heaps of classroom examples, and and it's sort of delivered really really articulately. Uh, and clearly for for teachers in the classroom, which is really what teachers want. You know, they want to know how where the rubber hits the road in the classroom. Yeah, that's right, and they want to get to the point quickly. <laughs> in other words, cognitive load theory in book form. <laughs> exactly, that's right. right. Exactly. Now, now, Sam, just before you go, you've got a podcast yourself, don't you? I do. Uh, I've got a podcast called The Range Project. I run that with my colleague Steve McLean. Uh, he's an engineer. Uh, and a teacher of STEM, and I teach mostly philosophy in a course called Theory of Knowledge. We both read the book Range by David Epstein, which is essentially advocating for um, learners to be sampling 
uh, and taking in as much breadth of opportunity as they possibly can. And yeah, it might um, they might have to trade off on depth uh, early on, but the payoffs will be significant later on in life. And there's lots of great examples in the book. But that inspired us to meet a whole bunch of people in, in education and all sorts of other fields. We, we interview neuroscientists and AI specialists and teachers really to draw lessons from them on how their breadth of learning and sampling has led to really fruitful and creative uh, careers. Okay, I'll put a link to your um, podcast on the episode notes of this one. So, um, so listeners will be able to just click on that link and it'll go straight through to it. Fantastic. And Phil, I'd love to have you on at some point if you'd, if you'd be up for it. So, Absolutely, Sam. We can talk about the neuroscience of learning a little bit more. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking part. Thank you very much, Phil. And I was talking to Sam Sterrett. Sam is the Head of Enrichment at the Scotch College in Swanbourne, Western Australia. And what Sam was saying reminded me of my visit to the Michaela School in London back in May, where all um, possibilities of distraction of students were removed from the the main learning areas. Uh, There was no uh, noise in the hallways. Students weren't allowed to make noise, weren't allowed to talk. Um, The classrooms weren't decorated to the hilt like you often see in many classrooms here in Australia. They were minimally decorated. Students had to sit in rows and they had to face the teacher. So there was um, minimal distraction um, in in the learning environment, which is really what you want um, to be consistent with cognitive load theory. Now, the next episode, the last episode for 2023, we'll be looking at the national curriculum. Uh, which I know will get people saying, oh, no, but it's it's about time we look at that national curriculum critically. Um, we'll be looking at the mass curriculum in particular um, and the history curriculums as well. Um, so we'll be looking at that. And next year, we'll be looking at more the neuroscience of learning. So this series won't be uh, one after the other. They'll be uh, interspersed. Um, so if you've got any comments about today's uh, about this episode, about cognitive load theory, please let us know. Marking the role at gmail.com. Marking the role at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Sam Sterrett from uh, Scotch College. Uh, my name is Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Role. I'll see you next time.